It's April 14th, 2020. I guess this is the second episode of the, the Fire Next Time podcast. We have on Narup Sedev, the wonderful Narup Sedev. Uh, how are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Uh, living the quarantine life. Living the quarantine life. Fun times. Crazy times. Insane times. So, uh, well, so you've really, you have a really interesting pedigree, a really impressive pedigree, in my opinion. You know, you've been an economist at a lot of, in, in, in the private sector, at, uh, at college universities, you've been all over the place. Do you want to kind of talk a little bit about your background before we kind of dig into all this stuff? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so my name is Narup Sadev and um, originally from India. Uh, and, uh, you know, currently I'm focused on two startups. One is called Leading Markets, the other the Digital Economist, um, and uh, also affiliated with MIT Media Lab and uh, UCL Center for Blockchain Technologies. My background, as you said, I'm an economist by training. I've been doing that for 15 years and sort of a lot more focused on innovation economics, um, so economics of merging technologies and really what, uh, you know, the goal of innovation is in uh, economic transformation as we go through various cycles of um, economic transformation globally. Uh, and, and sort of, you know, uh, a more perhaps uh, sharper focus on complexity science um, and so really sort of drawing insights from that, translating tools from economic science and building that um, building tools in businesses and strategy around that. Uh, like, you know, mm-hmm. That's sort of been my focus over the past five years in particular, um, since uh, sort of the transition from academia to motor industry and now even more to investments and uh, yeah, the, the startup ecosystem. That's so cool, man. Such a cool background. <laughs> um, yeah, when did we meet? I think we met at some event in New York, right? It was a fintech conference. Yeah. And it, I think we were on a panel. Yeah. Yeah, talking about emerging economies in 2017. It feels so long ago. Um, cool. So we might as well dig into it. So you're starting a new company called Digital Economist, which, if I might paraphrase, is basically helping people think about this, uh, what to helping people think about the digital economy. Uh, which is kind of a tautology, right? The digital economist helps people think about the digital economy. But would you say that's kind of an accurate representation of what your new company does? Yeah, I would kind of nuance that a little bit more, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're talking about the digital economy because uh, it touches every single part of the economy, right? Um, yeah. there, there was a time where like internet technologies were still in their early days and telecommunications was... Sure, um, relatively built out, but now there there are no no businesses that are not touched by digital systems. So really talking about uh, the whole global economy, and we're really talking about leveraging digital. Um, and you know, I, I can go a little deeper into what that sort of means and translates to for the global macro economy, and where we are focusing on. Um, but uh, I think it's fair to say that we are talking about the the current and the future state of the, the global economy when we say digital. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think it might be helpful if you just kind of, and honestly, I'm really interested in hearing about, you know, in your words, how would you fully define what the digital economy is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, there is, of course, a digital economist as, as an organization and where our thrust is on as a global impact platform. But, you know, kind of going back to your question on what the digital economy is and what the, the bounds are and what the scope is, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So there are a few things, right? First of all, like I said, digital systems that touch upon every single sector. Um, and then also, you know, the digital first, digital native systems. And you can think of crypto, you can think of uh, like the digital dollar, for example, talking more on you know, the financial economics side of things. And, and also gaming, for example, is, is a great example of uh, native digital systems, right, which are, have actual um, perceived value by, by the users and the participants uh, in that, you can call that a small economy. Um, and I think what you're kind of alluding to and, and maybe kind of going into the real economy, quote unquote, uh, as it was traditionally called and perhaps still is by some of the economists, uh, where you have physical systems, right? Like supply chains, 
and then agriculture and manufacturing, right? So this is not to say that that should be ignored or that is not important. In fact, that is the most important thing. But the point here is the following, which is that technology is what, you know, makes humans unique on the planet different from other species. And the fact that we are able to develop technology and in fact leverage it and and control our environment so much um, mm -hmm. and that is exactly where we can also look for solutions if you may and that means you know when we focus more on digital systems hopefully we can elevate some of the stress on physical systems um, mm -hmm. and with with the efficiencies with the scale that digital brings we can help the, the quote-unquote you know the, the real economy, right? So this may be connecting farmers to, uh, you know, digital credit uh, or the internet, for example, which is, is really the, the, the key platform that's sort of differentiating who is, who will succeed and who will fail in, in the, the global economy, right? So, and, and I can kind of go down the list uh, on that, but yeah. Yeah, so that is something that we've been talking about in our last, two weeks where it's really about, I think, I mean, I think to me, it's two things. One is that, um, and so would you say this is a fair statement that we, you know, given the explosive growth in the digital economy for the last, you know, 50 years, we're still almost still just scraping the, the surface that we're still almost at the tip of the iceberg. You know, would you, would, do you think that we're still going to grow so much, you know, next 20, 30 years? Completely. That's kind of goes without saying. In fact, what it's making us rethink is what do we call, you know, uh, the the economy? Because the majority, the larger part of that is digital now. If you look at the monetary value, right, the the biggest companies on stock exchanges, uh, you know, publicly listed companies are all internet companies, right? And the the biggest asset they have is data. Uh, right, so so that, that tells you a lot where value is being generated and created, right? Now the issue with that, and you know we could go deeper into that perhaps uh, later into the call, is that that is pushing physical systems and the real economy too far behind. So you saw this increasing inequality over the past two decades in the global economy, where those who could leverage intelligent machines, right? Uh, can grow much faster while others continue to lag behind. So for example, in the U.S., um, the real wages have been falling. So real wages are what you can actually, goods and services you can buy or with, let's say, a physical dollar spent after accounting for inflation, right? So if I could buy two apples with a dollar 10 years ago and now I can buy only one, my real, uh, you know, worth of dollar is actually reduced by 50%. Um, so... So real wages have been continuously decreasing, even well before the 2007 and 8 recession. Um, and so what we see is this increasing inequality, which is a much bigger issue, right? So the, I guess the reference here would be Tyler Cohen's Average is Over. It's a great book to sort of like understand these parallel economies, right? There's almost like a two-tier system where uh, there are those who can leverage intelligent machines where data is the, the new goal and then there's like everybody else um, and, and I think it, it shouldn't be like that um, and that's sort of part of the mission of the digital economy so what that means for you know socioeconomic system with social impact and how are we going to go about it yeah so so I do want to dig into that because I think there's I think there, it seems like there's a dichotomy in what you're saying, although I don't actually think there is. I think it's more like a conflation where, where on one hand, you're saying that the digital economy, these people that have the intelligent machines, they have experienced, well, let's say a huge increase in their wealth. Um, and to some degree, it's caused a disproportional distribution of wealth right? where people that have like the tech stocks, people that worked at these tech companies, they get you know, more benefits, you know, even today in this quarantine life, if you are part of the digital economy, if you can work remotely, then you still can produce an income when other people can't, right? If you work in the, the so-called real economy, 
Yeah. But at the same time, you're saying that we want to use the digital economy to create a more equitable kind of distribution of wealth. And I mean, it, to me, it, it almost sounds like a dichotomy, but I think there's like two things going on where to me, it's almost like I feel like we need to separate the distribution of wealth produced by the way we organize, the way our system is structured, not just the economy, but just every system is structured. And then there's, you know, what does the digital economy do to how we relate to each other? You know, do you, do you agree there that these are like two separate things? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I agree with you completely. So there is like 20, 30 years of literature on this parallel economies that is uh, that you know is is out there essentially which is um you know the traditional sectors right so four factors of production right econ 101 land labor capital and entrepreneurship and then enters technology which is a game changer game changer for the planet and and our future in it really and the current pandemic is an example of that um and so yes technology has been the enabler but it has traditionally been treated as a black box just something that increases productivity rather than changes the structure of the whole economy itself. And so I think if you still think it's just one of the factors of production of, you know, one of those extra things, or if you work in a sector where that is the case, then um, you're, you're already too far behind, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing now is that I mean, look at the way where capital is flowing, right? So we have a bunch of measures and indicators to actually prove it. This is not just a theory, right? Um, that That is going into high-tech sectors. Uh, and the money is flowing into funding those high-tech sectors, right? And finance, the, 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 the bigger animal of finance is much bigger than the total worth of the physical assets, uh, at least on paper, right? Mm-hmm. So why you know, we can kind of go, de- you know, further into environmentalists trying to measure the value of a tree and forest and all that, which I think is just outrageous. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yes, and, and on one hand, you have uh, these two parallel economies that it's, it's 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 not to some degree inequality is unbelievable. It is. Uh, you know, overall, of course, the standard of living in the world is increasing, but with increasing mm-hmm. around the planet. But inequality is just way beyond what could be sustainable. I mean, it's not even funny. It's not even just saying, oh, maybe unequal. I mean, look at the rest of the world, you know, and we can prove this through historical data. And Thomas Piketty, the French economist, he actually did. Um, mm-hmm. Capitalism, I think, in the 21st century, the book he wrote. Yeah. He, the yeah so historically highest um, inequality around the world right um and 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 yet we are saying at the same time yes tech is also the savior because there are benefits essentially comes down to the fact that this is a trend that is not going to get reversed it's not going anywhere right and that is understandable because of the benefits that technology provides so the folks who are in the most um Unless you want to go live in the jungle by yourself, that's one thing. <laughs> uh, for every sector, tech has benefits, right? In in terms of increasing productivity um, and incre- increasing the well-being overall, right? Uh, even over and beyond just economics of it. So that's sort of where you know you sort of have to live with the fact that we are going rapidly going towards the future where tech is more and more important. It already is. This crisis, for example, has brought in huge urgency and, and you know, yes, the high tech sector is fine. So guess what? I think um, there there's a very interesting thing that, that one of our council members, Nilima, she talked about that what this crisis has the potential to do is it would either increase the, the good, um, you know, um, and then at the same time also the bad, or we can put in the effort to kind of close the gap a little bit. Um, means those who are doing okay before the crisis would come out much stronger and better because their businesses, their lives didn't get impacted, right? Because we can order food through our app and, uh, you know, we can work from home. We're already used to it. That as is remote workers, as tech workers, nothing new there. Um, but for everybody else, it's a standstill, right? Mm-hmm. They're shut down. Uh, you cannot just leave the house and uh, people are on the streets and, uh, you know, 
in, in different parts of the world uh, without governments pumping cash into households. So even that, think about it, how are you going to deliver cash, right? So that, that's, that's a great example. You've got to have a bank account. Otherwise, the government right. cannot also give you any cash uh, for, you know, as, as just, um, you know, the disposable income for, for the duration of the crisis. So there, that's where you kind of start to see that technology is, it's, it's, it's not a necessary evil, it's just a necessity at this point. And you can still call it evil if you want, but I think you'll be losing out on the benefits. Yeah, so I guess, well, you know, how do we close the gap then, you know? How do we close the gap between uh, yeah. unequal distribution? Yeah, the, I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, and uh, the answer is that we need to stop worrying about those who are already filthy rich <laughs> and start worrying more about the ones who don't have enough. Uh, so the U.S. government at the moment is bailing out businesses for tens of billions of dollars. And it's just funny what they're giving out to small businesses and independent contractors, which is a few hundred dollars. It's completely right. ridiculous, you know. Um, and taking on right. debt, uh, which is getting pushed to future generations, um, like this particular, the millennials in, in at least in, in this landscape are where consumption is the core of the economy rather than savings. So, you know, I can sort of like talk about India being slightly different in terms of its consumption patterns. Um, but here they only own 3% of the total wealth uh, at this point, right? Now, the generation X was around um, the same age during the 2007 crisis, and they had around 20% of the total wealth of the United States. Oh. So that wow. tells you how rapidly we are impoverishing our future generations by taking on excessive debt uh, that can never be repaid um, and is pushed down over the generations. And people who are making these decisions would most likely not be around uh, by the time, you know, it, it, it comes to the point where this, this, I mean, basically it keeps cascading into more and more crises. That's sort of how it happens. Too much risk gets concentrated in a certain part of the economy and then it grows. So mm -hmm. that's in 2007. Yeah, you know, if anything, I think this crisis is because we didn't really resolve the inherent structural deficiencies in the system last time in 2008 and this time it went from a mortgage bubble to an everything bubble and so yeah i think that's a great example of how risk compounds we don't kind of deal with the roots of it but so but i mean but how would you close the gap because so what you were saying was we gotta stop worrying about um you know kind of the current system as it is we kind of kind of start start thinking about how we can deal with this these these crises but how do we do it you know from from like, what's the sequence of events that you see, given given the political realities? I think where, for example, we have a, a gridlocked U.S. system, right? Anything that the House passes that the Senate doesn't like is not going to go to the, the president's desk. Um, you know, we can't even get impeachment to work properly. Um, you know, like what do you what do you see as what do you see as a sequence of events where this new where we where we start closing the gap is it do you think it's a case where you know because one thing that i've seen which i think is a promising sign is that now that this this huge pandemic has showed up all of a sudden things that everyone thought was impossible right you know like medicare for all like universal basic income like canceling evictions like reducing rent all of a sudden it's like it's just passed you know just like that by a republican president so i mean on one side it's like well if it was so easy why didn't you do it you know, before all this happened, but also, you know, that to me is like, if the huge crisis shows up and the situation becomes untenable, then that might push through the change that we need. But like this pandemic will end at some point, you know, like, what do you think is the, the path where we reach kind of a, a more equitable, steady state? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess a, a transition plan, right? Like where there's an immediate response to crises itself and the immediate political openings that it offers as well. Because, um, and that is the thing about, you know, um, crises, political, economic, or a combination of that and health crisis at this point, um, that it, it, it 
kind of serves as a portal. You can choose to defend the old system or you can start to transition towards where you need to be, which is kind of clear to the world, right? Like we manufacture these viruses uh, by excessive, um, you know, stress on uh, wildlife and, and, and natural systems, right? And then they jump to, to humans because then we eat them. So it's interesting. Uh, and, and so this is going to keep happening. It's going to happen with even more frequency and severity um, because viruses obviously evolve over time, right? So that they are also getting stronger just as we continue to, uh, you know, be um, a lot more stressful for, for the planet as a whole to sustain us in turn, right? As, as a species, as, in fact, uh, just, you know, uh, planetary home we share with a bunch of other species. So, you know, most immediately from a political perspective, um, I don't know if we can solution for, um, I guess, ill intention on, on their, this call and this podcast or, or you know, uh, just in, in general sort of perhaps uh, ignorance or uh, narcissism really to, you know, um, not you know, have enough empathy for looking out and the ability, right? Uh, when you're leading uh, a nation, you're essentially serving its citizens, right? It's taxpayers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not so much about your decisions, it's about, well, what is it that would serve the interest of the people best? Uh, so I think it's, 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 it touches upon so many things, right? There's the political side of it, which I don't see it in isolation at all. It's the kind of leaders you're nurturing it's a kind of, um, you know, uh, are we embedding uh, empathy into what we're doing, our workspaces, right? And so I think there would be ripple effects for all of those things. This mm -hmm. as, uh, as a window, as perhaps even a portal into it, right? And so we're already starting to see that happen. Um, mm -hmm. so that's one. And then in the medium term, uh, we absolutely need to transition away from fossil fuels towards a lot more energy efficient systems towards, uh, you know, the five pillars we have, for example, the digital economist around sustainability, transparency, individual privacy, radical collaboration, um, etc. are um, basically are these future trends that we need to need to take care of, right? People are demanding more and more privacy, right? So, uh, and we need to be sustainable for our ecosystem, our um, uh, you know, general lifestyle and everything we enjoy here to continue to, to be sustainable. Um, and in fact, I would say we need to actively regenerate systems. We are well beyond the point where we just need to sustain them. So what do we need? Well, we need immediate an immediate response that requires global collaboration. That is <laughs> something we cannot change overnight, but yes, we need uh, leaders that are, well, at least what we call in the organization as, as conscious stewards, so caretakers mm -hmm. rather than uh, extractors of, of value uh, in, in society. Um, and then in the medium term, we need to just you know put in place that plan to transition away from things that are creating uh, huge cascading uh, problems for the world. So just understanding that the planet works as a single organism is a starting point to, to that, right? Like what you hear in one part of the world is interconnected with somebody else. And with the global interdependence, um, that is, you know, the meaning of globalization, really this rapid globalization, we need to, uh, we need to be able to understand and work with the fact that we have a shared future, right? Kind of comes back to that and it's, it's high level and everybody's like, yes, we get it. I think the beauty of this uh, crisis is that it really brings home that point, right? If something happens in China, it's going to be happening everywhere else in the world by right. next day. Right. now. <laughs> that is the global mobility pattern right now, right? So yeah. we are that interconnected. So couldn't be a better example. And then I also think there are some related sort of benefits. Uh, if you think of future work, for example, like the excessive mobility we have around the world, it, it's really sort of, you know, coming to focus now that is it really necessary? Do executives need to be in an airplane every day, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a lot of work that we can do better, more efficiently through virtual collaborations. Sure, there, you know, some you don't exactly get the human touch and everything, but you know, that's sort of where the challenge is for the tech companies that it could be improved, and that race is happening right now, as we speak, for this convergence of tech. Um, and and I think hopefully something good sort of comes out of this as well, right? Reducing excessive consumption sort of paying attention to, you know, the amount of paper you're consuming, for example, talking about toilet paper crisis, uh, you know, millions of trees get, uh, uh, you know, uh, chopped off every day, essentially, for that. So I think now that it is so close to home and it's so personal, um, I, I really see this as an opportunity to drive that global change, which otherwise was just so hard to even agree upon from even a definition perspective, right? Um, just, this, just the definition of sustainability or the UN Development Goals, for example, which were previously Millennium Development Goals, it should have been achieved by 2020. Then it became 2020 agenda, the SDGs. Uh, here we are in 2020, and now this is 2030 agenda, right? So uh, what this does is it's, it brings us to that inflection point, which it says like, well, let's make the change now and if not, this may be like a point of no return. Not to paint a doomsday scenario, but it's doomsday for humans, and in fact, certain humans, which are the poor and the most vulnerable, because the planet would go on, the planet doesn't need us, it's the other way around. Um, and so, you know, if we are, in fact, uh, an empathetic society, that's something we, that's a, that's a value decision we make as a society, right? Then we need to make those changes knowing that, you know, the ones who would get worst impacted are the ones who have the least resources. So, you know, there's a lot of things, I think, to unpack what you just said. Um, you know, we talked about in my, in, uh, a more empathetic society, which I want to come back to. But then we, we also talked about a number of different solutions around regenerating systems, around reducing our paper usage, around not flying around, around protecting the poor, you know, all kinds of solutions. And so here, here's the point I want to make about solutions is that, you know, when I used to be a management consultant, then we would go into an environment and kind of get some information. And it very, very rapidly became clear what the problem was. And it very rapidly became clear what the solution was. Like within a week, it would be pretty obvious. It's like, well, here is obviously your problem. You know, that guy's incompetent. And you know, here's obviously the solution is, is do this and that. Um, but you know, the reason, you know, you, you can't really say that to a client. And the reason is because, well, the obvious reason is because even if you did say that, you know, they couldn't do anything about it. Um, but the underlying reason is because organizations tend to have their own inertia. And so they're kind of set on this path. And you can't just say, well, you know, this is the way we should go. We can't do, especially larger organizations can't just turn around on a dime and just start marching it in that new direction. And so then your job starts to turn more into like, well, this is this glorious future that I can kind of see the glimmer of my eye, but we need to kind of, you know, work with the, whatever realities are, are on the ground to kind of get there one step at a time and half time you don't even get there. And so, so that's my point about solutions, which is that I think, you know, having, you know, worked in kind of, kind of the impact space as well, you know, which is when we met, I think it's very, I think there's been a lot of people that know that this is the solution, you know, that we should, for example, you know, that we should transition away from fossil fuels. I think that's a great example because we've known this for more than half a century. And the fossil fuel industry has known this for more than half a century. And these are, you know, these are smart people. It's not like they didn't know that these things would happen. But um, there was never, but we just kind of continued on, on the path until now. And so, you know, there's something else you talked about a second ago, which is that it's, it requires us to have more long-term thinking. But I think for some, you know, I can't speak to them, but I think for some of the people in the, in the, who, in the fossil fuel industries might have thought, well, you know, this is going to happen in 100 years, but I'm going to be dead. And if I stop this now, A, I can't stop it because I'm just an individual. I'm going to say, hey, guys, we should, you know, stop drilling. And the only thing that will happen is I'll get fired. And the industry is not going to stop just because 
I did anything, you know? And so, so that's kind of a long-winded way to say that, you know, I think you of all people should know more than anyone else that, that there's economic kind of fundamentals that tend to decide a lot of the decisions we make as a society. And they tend to decide a lot of the values that we hold as a society. And so, you know, how do you see, how do you see that interacting with, with when we talk about a more empathetic society? You know, do you see kind of, you know, let's just, just that, for example, do you see things happening? Because I do actually, I do. But do you see kind of like this crisis forcing us to become a more empathetic society or more a society that looks more in the long term? Do you see there being fundamental economic or fundamental changes the environment that forces to do that, that mm. kind of set us on this path? Short answer is yes. We were torching the planet, now everybody's sent home, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, you talked about the economics of it. I think it's just misguided economics. That's total bullshit. That's not economics. That is self-interest. That is greed. I literally started writing a piece down on don't blame the economists for greedy billionaire interests when Trump here announced that he wants to reopen the economy by Easter, which was yesterday, uh, <laughs> as people continue to die at an exponential rate. So um, greed should not be confused with sound economics. Uh, and then the other thing is they don't really listen to economists unless when they are you know, helping confirm their own biases at the political stage, right? Mm -hmm. Economists work with the real economy, which is people, wages, right? Quality of life, well-being, well-being indexes, happiness indexes, and, and all of those, all of that has been built by economists, right? A lot of technology systems, markets, when companies get too powerful, breaking monopolies, all of economists works, right? Designing auctions, efficient, uh, you know, um, allocation of resources, and I could go on and on. Every single aspect of your life is touched by economists, whether or not you realize it. Um, it's just kind of a thing that happened the past 20 years where finance became a driver, right? Finance has a, and, and you know a lot of that, it's, uh, it's a bit of a gambling thing. Not all of finance, not you know, but the, the, the very kind of uh, aggressive finance is not too, you know, different from gambling, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Making profits as soon as possible. Uh, so when you see sectors that are high growth, when you see sort of like this hit and run sort of thing, which happened with the fossil fuel industry continues to, um, and then also, you know, many other sectors, emerging tech, internet, pornography, you name it, right? So, so our, our marijuana, for example, weed, and they, they, they jump in, right? And they put a lot of money fuel behind it. That's basically what happens, right? So money mm -hmm. as energy into the system. So then that explodes, right? While, you know, as economists, we continue to be like poverty, inequality, wages of people, quality of life. So first of all, let's just separate the two. You know, greed is not what we focus on as, as economists. Uh, most of the economists study that subject and uh, the initial, uh, you know, goal or motivation or inspiration is to improve the state of the world. And the fastest way to do it is perhaps money, right? And, and that is one way you can empower people. So having said that, um, yes, the crisis is, again, like I said, uh, brings that sort of urgency. What happens is we are in complex systems, right? There are a lot of interdependencies, there are moving parts, and these so-called black swan events are not unexpected events. They are property of the system, as, as we call it. That means uncertainty you simply cannot calculate the probability of, so it just hits you when it happens. And then suddenly, the past dependency, which is what you refer to, because organizations have inertia, then suddenly changes. Right, so so it, it basically sets you on a different trajectory than what you were on before, and that is exactly what we should do for this crisis, right? Rather mm -hmm. than being so guarding off what we had previously as our system, and it is sort of baffling and shocking and immoral, essentially, when you're you know burning taxpayer dollars 
in, in saving big corporations, right? And they're uh, highly paid executives, if you see what I mean. So if you're taking trillions of dollars of wealth uh, as, as uh, you know, debt um, that you're going to push down to future generations, then uh, and then you're paying salary, right? Like the Paycheck Protection Program, just as a concrete example. And you're saying we'll give you know, a few billion dollars to a big bank in order to keep the employees on the payroll. That salary you're getting is funded by the folks who are getting pushed out of the gig economy, literally. Mm-hmm. Right. And connection, that macroeconomic connection is what a lot of people don't understand. They don't get mm-hmm. it, right? They simply hated economics and the way it was taught uh, in, in, in school or you know, it's just just that understanding is missing because of whatever reasons. I don't think you can you can succeed in a socioeconomic system that you don't understand, right? How can you optimize for yourself, and how can you solve big global problems like inequality, right? Like like poverty or or climate change. Um, and so I think what this crisis can do is is basically push corporations out of that inertia. And honestly. I'm having these conversations every day. It's already happening. So sure, it's one thing about, you know, consulting experience in the past and, you know, uh, we all have been there and uh, it's it's interesting to kind of turn out a lot of ideas quickly, but it's quite another as to what it takes for behavioral change. Um, mm-hmm. and that's the other side of economics, as you mentioned. As, as a science, our tools are as rigorous as physics, right? Mm-hmm. The, as, a, as an art, as a social science, we're essentially dealing with humans. So when markets crash, it's the fear that spreads through markets, even though they may not be anything fundamentally wrong with the markets, right? So ultimately what you're dealing with is the spread of information, is fearful individuals who don't want to lose money. It, there's, there's no real economics in it, so to say, or economic engineering, right? It is simply human behavior that we're dealing with. So that's sort of where, you know, it is important to look over and beyond economics for, for my life that has been the work of my life where I draw a lot from sociology, political science, from behavioral economics, cognitive psychology, because you simply cannot study things in isolation. That is the first fa- point of failure where things are siloed, right? Governments are siloed um, and, and like the nation state is a joke at this point in the world, if you really think about it. Right from an immigrant perspective, from the global interdependence perspective, uh, from economic, uh, the, you know, perspective, and just the the geography, right? Uh, and so, like, you have companies that are truly global, but the only people that can enforce any rules on them are nation states. And then, when people are not going and voting, essentially, you have next to no corporate governance or very fragmented corporate governance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that are responsible for the majority of the things that are damaging the planet. Uh, like just the hundred biggest corporations are responsible for something like 70% of the global emissions, right? Mm-hmm. So because of the fragmented political system, the nation states, we uh, are completely inefficient and effective in, in holding those entities responsible, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, in turn, overfunding or I should say funding our overconsumption. So, you, you know, you can ask whether corporations are the bad guys or not. I don't think that is the case. Uh, they manifest what we want, this hyper, uh, you know, uh, fast and society that, that is overconsuming uh, way or beyond than planetary resources. So that I see them, uh, I see corporates around the world as a, as a, as a reflection of that. Uh, but yeah, so, so you know, like you said before, there's a lot to unpack here, but hopefully the point here is that none of these things that separate, these are all interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. I think that was kind of, that was a really good answer, actually. So do you see your role then as an economist in bringing about this more equitable future? Do you see your role as basically helping people see the interdependencies and kind of drawing on your experience and your skill set and helping illustrate what a more feasible system would look like and just kind of giving that to people and, and then kind of working with people to kind of to kind of get to that point yeah we're working on exactly that on what that blueprint for the new digital 
economy looks like that's human-centered um, mm -hmm. and working towards this convergence piece, right? Not just of technology, but also of humans and technology, right? So what does it look like to use technology for the betterment rather than, oh, let's just move fast and break things? Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. That's sort of mine. Um, so, so that that is exactly the mission of the digital economist, and and we're doing that right now uh, as we speak, you know. And uh, if it's, if you think about it, ultimately, it's I think we are in the business of you know converting souls, and that is true for a lot of the impact world. So, mm -hmm. as long as you don't recognize that this is the the human at the center of it. Uh, right. Ultimately, it's human mind and human intention and human effort because humans are the only animals that can create reality, you can hold imagination mm -hmm. and then build something that didn't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Other species, other species can also work with tools. They have emotional intelligence. They remember things they learn and all that. We share that with other species. But what they don't have, which we do have, is this imagination. Right. and being able to create mm -hmm. our from it. So, you know, take that, right? And rather than just say, oh, you know, corporations are the bad guys or there's too much inertia in organizations or governments are full of people who are, you know, uh, not doing good for the society, which is true. Uh, our approach is, well, let's just build the world we want to see, you know, and, we, and we're doing exactly that. I think that's a great tagline that our mission is 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 conserving souls. You know, I think that's a really great tagline. You know, I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, and I think we spent we just spent forty minutes just kind of working through step by step the mission of the Digital Economist, but it's a really really cool mission. Um, so yeah, I guess then then the big question is the trillion. The quadrillion dollar question is, what is this blueprint for the new economy that you see? Mm -hmm. So I kind of, you know, alluded to that sort of starting to unravel what solutions might exist there. Uh, speaking as an economist, I think the first of those and we published that Forbes piece on rebooting the global economy is separating the digital from the physical, right? So. 30 seconds on the role of money here would be ultimately money is uh, a claim on energy spent somewhere in the system, right? So if I click a button on Amazon, something is showing up outside of my door, then what that, what those dollars do is essentially say, manufacture that thing, right? Put in the energy, the resources, and then put it in a vehicle, ship it, to my place, right? Mm -hmm. So think about it, when you're creating money out of thin air, which is what fiat money is, the government of the US just printed $2 trillion worth of fiat money, which means I promise to hold or provide the goods and services worth uh, this face value, that's fiat. That's different from back standard and that is something we are past since the 1970s, right? So it's essentially a token of trust. It's a social contract. Um, so we have too much of this abstraction of money that we've created, right? Which mm -hmm. out of thin air, which is a collective human hallucination that we all agree that something like this is value. So we all choose to transact through it or store value in it, right? Um, and to relieve that pressure and how that sort of like ties into physical systems, we need to separate the digital systems from the physical systems. The interaction has to happen. But one of the, uh, you know, solutions there was around having a dual monetary system where value stays, uh, say, a, a digital dollar that's only for digital transactions and then like a more physical stuff, if you may which is like paying taxes with or, you know, uh, the sort of cash in a grocery store. So this is uh, not a lot exists, uh, which is surprising given the literature and economics on this. There, there's some work by, um, by, you know, economists who've been working in the environmental domain 
but there isn't a lot there on how we can separate this, right? So think about it. So if there's too much movement in, um, you know, uh, in public markets in the U.S., so you're trading futures, right? But you're betting that it's it's all going to fall apart. That is impacting farmers in poor countries, while mm-hmm. there are crazy bets being taken in developed countries, and you know, um, hyper fast systems. Uh, and and front running and a lot of it is almost plain unethical if you look at stakeholders. If if your fiduciary responsibility is to maximize shareholder value, right? You, you're not you're not doing that well. So the the uh, the recommended reading here would be Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. So it's a, oh, that's a great book. Great book. In yeah. a uh, little you know uh, insight into what's what's happening there. So if we can separate these two, ultimately what you can do is you can relieve the pressure from physical systems um, on one hand because they are in they are not infinite, they're finite, they're scarce, right? There are ecological boundaries of the planet. We cannot go over beyond that. And on the other hand, it's the human animal spirits, right? From a behavioral perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, we want to push the bounds. Are we going to go far and beyond and like see what's, you know, over the horizon, right? And we can continue to play and basically unleash these animal spirits in the digital domain that wouldn't cause cascading impact on the physical domain, right? So, and examples exist already, like, you know, gambling, like gaming, again, billions of dollars worth of industries, et cetera. Uh, so though that is, I think, uh, a starting point on how we can reconcile the, the digital and then the physical economy is by creating some checks and balance in the, in, and separating the two. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's really cool. So, you know, I appreciate that we don't have a ton of time left. So I just want to talk about one thing, which is really interesting to me, um, is when you talk about when we need to create a more empathetic kind of society. So what does that look like to you? And what does that look like to you in a sense of, you know, how do people relate to each other? And what do you think, how do you think that'll change, you know, everything else? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, economy is an abstraction. It, it comes from a Greek word, which literally means taking care of your household. So oh, if really? I- yeah, so if I were to translate really cool. that to the global economy, it's basically saying this is our household, this is our home. It's literally mm-hmm. that, right? So you got to take care of it. Um, and that's why, you know, uh, I usually first explain what economists do because there's so much misunderstanding uh, around mm-hmm. that, uh, particularly over the past two decades. Um, and, you know, empathy for me is uh, right now it directly translates into female leadership. An example would be look at the current countries that have female heads of governments, New Zealand, Taiwan, Denmark, um, you know, uh, what else do we have there? Uh, Germany, they are doing so much better and the number of people dying from coronavirus is like one tenth of a similar country, the same size, same population and infection rate. So I think that something what we have is an imbalanced world where just too much self-interest uh, aggressive behavior right has sort of translated into building of institutions institution is a system that we use over time so that it becomes so institutions itself become uh, valuable right that needs to change and i think the fastest way to achieve a more empathetic society is to have a lot more female leadership than we currently do. I basically mean 50% and more. Uh, it's funny because one of my Uber drivers I was talking to, uh, he said to me, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, you know, we men had this place to run for a while. They totally screwed it up. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'd be more than happy to hand it over. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, that's, that's you know, there's a... There's an obvious kind of, uh, you know, reason and perhaps even a biological advantage there when it comes to empathy. There's something about, I guess, I guess biologically females as um, mothering, right? Which is 
also sort of translates to what we have is like conscious stewardship, but you're taking care of the other. You're not just looking for self-interest. So this narrative that is sold, it's actually just one of the schools of economics around saying individuals are fully self-interested. That's just neo economics, right? If you look at other schools of thought, they optimize for the society or the whole, right? Um, so like in India, we actually study other schools of thoughts as well. Uh, and that brings me back to why education is broken, because it's literally like brainwashing people, just teaching them one types of thoughts, uh, which is a disservice, right, in, in terms of the um, development of your psyche and character and integrity. Um, and, and so what does it take? Well, for me, it takes a lot more female-led businesses, a lot more leadership roles, just having that representation presence, not to mention the bar for being a, a female leader is much, much higher, uh, just in terms of confidence uh, than, uh, than men for the most part. And the more studies and research continue to prove that over and over again, right? I can quote a lot of numbers right now, but I know we are running out of time. Uh, so, so that's what it translates to, and I think you will automatically start to see the smaller tools uh, as they evolve out of it. Like New Zealand is a great example, right? Putting well-being ahead of uh, the economics of the, you know, the country. Uh, so maybe this is the version that New Zealand has, right? Maybe it's a different version we would have in South Asia in a country like Pakistan, for example, right? And and you know, the various translations of it uh, could could be different, could vary across geographies. But what that means is, you know, we are looking out for the whole uh, without rising the individual and not you at the expense of others. Uh, so I think that's just like empathy 101, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right, it's really cool. So what do you call it, saving souls? Uh, converting souls. Converting souls. I guess that's what it that's what it comes down to, converting souls one at a time. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think we're out of time. So thanks so much, Dr. for coming on. Sounds Thank really you. good. Good luck for you know, I hope you know, we can all achieve this this much better future that we're talking about. And uh, I guess I'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you.